Promise No Promises The Tail and the Tongue Episode 1 Shelter in Sounds The podcast Promise No Promises unfolds a further chapter under the name The Tail and the Tongue. This series of new episodes arises from conversation between curator and writer Sonia Fernandez-Pan and guests from different storytelling practices and world-making experiences. For a conversation to take place, it is sufficient when two people start talking to each other. However, conversations are never happening just between two people. A conversation holds many bodies, places, stories and experiences. It develops languages and creates interpersonal and temporary dialects. Sharing is also a way of collectivized, seemingly individual circumstances. Our bodies host many narratives, speaking borrowed words and making stories an important part of who we become. Stories travel between bodies, welling in them. Always in motion, they have no end. Worlds make worlds in which reality and its fictions travel through the tongue to become tales. Shelter in Sounds is the first episode that follows a conversation with musician and artist Sarah Bader. As a composer, she produces music under the name Fractal, her experimental solo project active since 2011. Over the course of a decade, Fractal has self-published several EPs and albums, with Excision After Love Collapses being her latest release, which appeared in 2020, joining her previous soundworks, the EPs B-Sides, Descent Fieda and Prose Edda, and the albums Atom and Qualia. I think it was in 2019 that Sarah Bader, with her profile as Fractal, and I started following each other on Twitter. Although social networks impose a pre-established system of communication on us, it is also true that there are many different ways of being on them. Sarah's presence through Fractal caught my attention because of her way of crediting her projects and sharing those of other musicians in a space where the social is becoming more and more diluted in individual self-promotion. Thanks to Fractal's profile, I had the opportunity to meet Sarah in person months ago on the occasion of this podcast, starting and expanding our conversation in writing. In 2020, her music was the soundtrack to a year that was as hectic as it was paralyzing. As she herself comments during our meeting, music allows us to give voice to abstractions and feelings that perhaps don't easily find a place in words. In preparation for our meeting, I read several interviews with Sarah and re-listened to her albums, which have been a great sound companion during lonely winter walks. Our conversation began 
by revisiting an earlier conversation she had with Jack Shooter for the Crucial Listening podcast series in October 2020, where she talked about her early connection to music and mythology. Qualia and Prose Edda are two sound works in which she uses mythology as a context of her music production. We both share a passion for ancient Greek mythology and its ageless stories. But Sarah Bader's fascination with mythology spans other cultural and historical contexts, bringing back with Prose Edda an ancient textbook of Icelandic poetry and myth. As she herself comments, it is possible to feel proximity and affinity with places and environments with which we apparently have no direct connection and also with its stories. Throughout her life, Sarah Bader has lived in different cities and has been exposed to different cultural contexts. In addition to the unresolved question of the origin of things, there's another unresolved question, that of identity in process and in motion. Identity is a journey where one's own uncertainty is mingled with external readings and expectations. Our continuous process of self-editing and rewriting is joined by the construction that other people and institutions make of us, selecting some aspects and discarding others. This is very often the case in the short paragraphs of our biographies within the projects we are part of. Personally, I often have the feeling that biographies and CVs speak more about the places and institutions we work in than about our lives and directions. Identity, which Sarah relates to uncertainty, is intimately related to music. Sound transformed into music can also give a sense of identity for our life in constant transit, as well as converging different times and places in the same space. Because not only do we relate to music through conscious listening and selection, but we are also exposed to music in its multiple manifestations. To the songs that play randomly while we work, to the sound of the cities we live in, to the music of people close to us. Music, like smells or tastes, is a time machine. It reactivates the past, but it also awakens possible futures. As musician Ahosan, who also appears in the Crucial Listening podcast series, says, music allows you to create paradoxes. Although we did not talk about her visual work for her own project and for those of others, Fractal's music also includes the relationship that can occur between sound and image. Shortly before we met, she was part of the Hi-Fi project in collaboration with the Matroshka Club and the CTM Festival. Composing music for imagery worlds that only exist in the digital world, as with the Matryoshka Club within Minecraft, is something that ties in with Sarah's long-standing passion for film soundtracks and music videos. One of the cultural fields most affected by the pandemic has been the music industry. With the cancellation of all live events and the indefinite suspensions of audiences, clubs and concert venues. However, for Sarah Bader, the current situation is quite similar to how she has been working all these years with the internet being the usual place for the dissemination and listening of her music. 
Although it is too early to tell what will happen in the future, it is certain that digital formats attempting to reproduce or translate lost encounters are often unsatisfactory. Perhaps it is time to start thinking about music beyond the club and the stage. This conversation with Sarah Bader took place in mid-February 2021. Sarah was in Riga, Latvia, her current place of residence, and I was in Berlin, a city where she has also been based in the past. Two recording devices and two identically shaped coffee cups were part of our meeting. Not only places or contacts nourish our identity, objects can also connect us with other people we not always get to know personally. This is a situation that happens with music and its condition to temporary and timeless shelter. Thanks to music, we are part of a community much larger than ourselves in our own lifetime. It is perhaps for this reason that Sarah and I have sometimes commented on the possibility that we may have been part of the same audience at a concert in the past in Berlin. Until this happens again, we can continue to give context to the music through our bodies and voices. To start the music of my childhood, I was born in London and not long after I spent some years in Cairo before then continuing to move around. In those few years, I spent a lot of time with my grandparents and my mum's younger sister, who is always in both sides of my family, music, film, these things were very important. It grows out of After the 50s in Egypt, there was like this golden age of cinema and this continued on. There's this rich tradition of songwriting and classical music in the sense of in local context. The sounds that I think I was first exposed to, it was in that period of time, leaning more towards modal music, Egyptian pop music, these moods of music. My dad, since maybe he was in his 20s, he had this cassette collection that was steadily growing. And then when he moved to London, I think he took pride in collecting and preserving them. In Cairo, I have some of these tapes still, and even in some photos that I come across, I'd mention this also to Jack, that you can see in the background, they were just, you know, he's like reading a book and there's some cassettes in the background. And I only started to listen to them when I was growing up in the States, and then more recently when I was in Cairo. 
So it was through my mom and dad, primarily. My mom played double bass in school uh, when she was young and a few other instruments. Also, I came across some photos. Um, so for her, me playing musical instruments later in my life was, I think, an important thing. For the sake of enjoyment, it wasn't anything to do with maybe some parents push their kids into music because there's like some discipline angle to it. But for me, it started out with keyboard, what I thought was a small guitar, but turned out to be banjo that I think belonged to my uncle. I was very fascinated with these things that made sound. So that alongside with hearing music on the radio, my mom also used to love listening to radio growing up and some of the Western music, also like in my dad's tape collection, there's a lot of Bee Gees and ABBA and a lot of jazz, um, Miles Davis. Growing up, I was kind of agnostic when it came to not so fixed in style or anything. I really appreciated more the mood the tone, the timbre of music, going towards more emotional music I was always drawn to. As I grew older, it was, you know, classical music education combined with then what I used to listen to on the radio. So like everything from hip hop to hard rock, I guess back then, or grunge. Or... I went through all of the phases and I also used to record. My dad had like this stereo boombox thing that had a mic built in and I could then record from tape to tape and also record myself. There was a lot of variety, also a lot of music in the movies that I was exposed to early in life. For me, this notion of music as a soundtrack, to be listening to music while you're doing something, it was just a part of every day. I think this grew out of it would be interesting to create soundtrack for literary text and mythology is a very straightforward one in that it has this quality of intrigue in that there's this distance in time and it's very allegorical there's a lot of metaphor especially when it comes to Norse mythology like these natural elements descriptions of the earth and so for prose Edda it made sense to marry the two together and, yeah, wonder what that would be like. But just exploration and it's a bit cathartic. The trouble with liking so many different styles of music or not really distinguishing, not really boxing anything in, is that when it's all completely open, it's very hard to then create sense of focus for project. So you need to then create artificial constraint around, zoom in on some core concept or theme or something. So I think that that maybe might be the bridge between the two, that you like a lot of different sounds, but to push something forward, you need to then give it context. And that context can then be borrowed from something that is ancient and folkloric in nature. 
favorite myth? Not anyone in particular. I do like the one about the Danaids or even the myth of Sisyphus. To me, this it's the similar concept where I went through a period of time also I was very fascinated with Camus' writing and this absurdist outlook on life that every day is a struggle, that's basically it and you have to find a way to be okay with that. I think with Danaids, it's with this leaky vessel constantly filling up, there's little resolution there but at least in terms of Sisyphus, that he, you know, pushing the boulder up the mountain has to just, you have to assume that he's happy with that. I think that there's a lot of meaning that we put into what we do to make it worthwhile for ourselves. I think this notion of that something has any intrinsic meaning is a bit slippery. If you start to unpick things from the meaning that we have either conditioned ourselves or been conditioned, it's both at the same time that you can fall into a bit this nihilistic pit, but I'm more inclined towards absurdist outlook where, yeah, a lot of things don't make sense. We're born to die, but we make, we create value in between that. We create meaning. Art, in a way, is a bit absurdist endeavor also, but people can find some value in that if it connects in some sort of way. A lot of myths that have this as their theme, besides the Medusas and all of that, it's more these life-assessing ones that zoom out of interpersonal dynamics or some moral, some commentary on morality, but rather this examining the human condition in a very wide sense. I think is something we can all relate to because ultimately, you know, it's always this why are we here question that always remains unanswered. I think a lot of mythologies or bodies of mythology, they have similar stories. If you dig deep and see kind of what it is that they are examining, and it's also not unlike religion, these stories that humanity over the centuries have developed in order to make sense of this, everything. In terms of home, that definitely like touches upon something I've been trying to figure out my whole life because of the frequent moving. To this day, I'm much closer to it now in terms of sense of resolution or sense of priority than I was back then when I was very hungry for feeling rooted someplace, feeling a sense of belonging, also whilst figuring out what is identity. I think people who tend to move a lot, especially from an early age, their sense of identity becomes fraught with uncertainty and this the pendulum swings between wanting to conform so much to the immediate surroundings and fit in because especially as a teenager you don't want anyone looking at you in thinking that you're different almost conformity becomes this desired 
state. And then afterwards, the phase often comes that you rebel against conformity and you want to forge your own identity and figure out who you are and be different from everyone else. This, these two extremes in, in between. To tie about whom in particular, I think in the end, the natural conclusion of that was where I felt most comfortable, where the people who I love the most are, where there's this sense of shelter and safety and where you feel that you can flourish. And also there are some places where when we visit, even for a brief period of time, there's this sense of natural affinity to those places. For example, I've always, even though with my ties to Egypt, my sense of affinity to northern countries, more from an environmental and climate aspect, I think also like physically just preferred places where the summers are not so hot. I actually, I do like winter a lot. And I think that might have grown out of also spending part of my childhood growing up in London. But back then it it's very different from now. There's been a lot of like even disillusionment about I've always very often wanted to be in the place I wasn't in. And I think that had to do with a lot more than just like the place itself. Now and how music fits into that, it ties into this sense of home, not just in physical space, but I think in yourself. Um, because it also connects to identity and this kind of exploring, ultimately, sounds that, yes, can be very nostalgic in terms of these songs that evoke sense of the past, like some home-cooked meal from childhood can be in the memory very, very strong. At that time, there's this perceived comfort and music can be that way because you associate it with so much more than the music itself. It's the time that you listen to it. It's the people who you listen to it with. It's the place that you were in. To simplify all of this, they do go hand in hand. And I think that also when you explore the sounds that you make, you can also chart some the place that you were in when you were making these sounds, there is this connection between the two and it gives you a sense of history, it gives you a sense of place and definitely a sense of identity, especially when then others come to identify you with that. But again, music taste, when your identity is multifaceted and involves many different places and the history is like with the bike in the street, kind of it snakes around. It helps to create some sense of focus. It gives some sense of clarity where really it's very chaotic underneath that and a mix of different things, but at least it helps to explain. Sometimes words are not enough to explain and I think sounds can do that for us. It's a lot of feeling, it's a lot of embedded in there is so much of our experience that came before. Maybe music is a very efficient way to communicate some of these abstract things to others who might be able to also connect in the feeling of it but have different stories themselves.
experience of London growing up was very different from my experience of when I went there for university. Growing up, I lived in Rains Park mostly, and that was in zone three or four. It's quite a well away from the city center. It feels like suburbs. Cairo, on the other hand, growing up, either when I was living there or when we visited frequently, because most of my extended family lives there in Egypt. My grandparents' apartment back then was very much in one of the older areas, the very busy areas. And then it was only later on that would spend time not in the very new areas, which are kind of remote because they're trying to spread people out from this very congested core of the, the city. But for me, even like those areas are so dramatically different from each other. This thing about the smell of a city and the sounds of a city. The first time I went to Riga, when I came here, I noticed that there's like this smell that reminds me of Cairo. Um, and I think because there's some sandy low in terms of the sea level, and there's this sandy deposit in the ground that makes it a bit dusty, and Cairo is this way. In terms of like Cairo, the sounds are definitely the most evocative for me. I think there are other cities in the world that I haven't been to yet that I'm fairly certain probably sound like Cairo, but even like Beirut when I lived there, it has like a different sound from Cairo, even though they're technically, some people would lump them in the same region, but I disagree, they're very different. London, the living there, there's a, like a color tone to life there when you remember what it's like and speed is in a particular way. Here it's very different, in Cairo it's very different, in New York it's very different. I also lived a lot in the suburbs in New Jersey growing up. That was also very, very different. I definitely prefer now the more rural, calm, green areas. It's interesting to think about these different qualities to a place and how that shapes people's lives and memories. That's a very good question and has been something that I've been trying to reckon with since first starting out, you know, being someone in the public in any way. And even before releasing music, there was this online presence, but it was less about where you were from, but rather what you were interested in. That's how you were identified. But then, of course, in terms of music industry or art industry generally, probably also in terms of people who work in literature and stuff, I understand why context is important. And I also appreciate that people don't have much time when they're scrolling on their phones trying to digest something that pertains to someone and you're trying to, you know, provide this context that some long format will not do in those instances. Mm -hmm. 
I think the first time that I struggled with this was back in 2015-2014 maybe. The uprising in 2011 kind of put Egypt on the map in terms of so-called Westerners. I also hate like these dividing the world in discrete terms, but that Egypt suddenly became this less of this faraway place with about pyramids and Egyptian mythology and stuff. And it was a year during which people many who weren't familiar with the situation there suddenly were familiar with the situation there, including also a lot of video footage of places that they didn't necessarily think about before. How does Cairo look now beyond knowing that there's pyramids? There was a lot of interest in the creative scene in Egypt. It was around this time also, 2011-2012, that I really made the move to be more based in Cairo and less so in London, getting involved at the time in the activist movement. After that point, you would get the email about, hey, we want to do Egyptian pavilion for some festival, also Egyptian woman. This also coincided with this suddenly female electronic musician thing. Like it was no longer enough that you were making music. No, but if you're a woman making music, that was cool. Let's write about this. This was newsworthy. I kind of reeled against both of these things because while on the one hand I didn't very much appreciate getting random message, you know, saying, hey bro, I really like your music, or like, I can't believe you're a woman, that kind of thing. I I used to, like, for example, not use my own photo because I didn't find it necessary, but then at some point I realized I have to put my name and I have to put my photo because otherwise people just assume things. And I don't like when people assume without information, like at least be informed and then you can make your assumptions. That's fair enough, but don't just out of the box assume. So I tried very much to frame it about like where I was based and I was always based between several cities to like not be pigeonholed, not be thought of as either you're this or you're this and people will make that decision for you most of the time. You're not allowed to, yes, I'm from the UK or I'm from Egypt or I lived in the States, but there's like more to that. There's a long story. And if you have some three hours, I can tell it to you, you know, like if it's, but online, there isn't this opportunity to also correct. It definitely depends on like who's getting in touch. For example, if there's something to do with some institution in the Gulf region, no one is going to be like, oh, and we're going to write down that you are Egyptian or that you're British. No, they like stick to works between this and this and this city because it's not exciting to say that Egypt is like not so far away. People have been there. It's like we know what Egypt is. But for some other festival in Berlin or London or whatever, this becomes part of the story. Also, these events and institutions are getting funded and their funding 
We all know that there are these kind of requirements or conditions for that funding in terms of representation. So it also becomes useful to highlight that oh so we have person from here and person from here and person from here to create this sense of we are providing opportunities to a wide range of people there's this balance and this is important but i feel like there could be better ways to do it that at least ask the person who you're writing about there's barely any but one time I really had opportunity to do like a proper interview uh, Katrina who's a Belgian journalist was very kind enough to ask these questions make sure that there's this more complete picture even if the time doesn't allow for but like at least there's some nuance that is more genuine than some attempt to fetishize at a distance or write something for clicks or try to meet the conditions of some grant. Yeah, I hope one day we move beyond the point where, sure, it's interesting to know someone's story, but then know it fully. Don't, you know, some metadata, some tag in terms of we will create this person's identity for them as opposed to this person identifies in a certain way and we're interested to find out and that we can communicate and then maybe one day it won't matter at all will be just about the work and if there's some story that someone wants to attach it's the artist or musician themselves who's doing that who's communicating that it's not up to some PR whatever it's something that gets under my skin but I used to be more protective of how this was and now I if I'm dealing with something or someone from particular institution it's a bit easy to now if there is something I'm concerned about to just mention it in the beginning maybe please don't mention this or that that's fair enough it also makes it easier for everyone to do their job because I understand like we can't always just immediately know what's in someone else's head about something like just to be fair About image and from the start, if you look at there's like this uh, generation of EDM single covers that have just like women's boobs or bums or this sells music. That old adage of sex sells and the woman's face and figure being used as a marketing tactic even for work by men that has always been i think this pressure for women to basically the natural inspiration to end up becoming some kind of pop icon or uh, something adjacent to a model this is something that many of us have grown up with i think it's gotten better in terms of what expectations we allow to 
be imposed on ourselves. I think there are many who are rebelling against this in terms of their image and how it's portrayed, especially online. It doesn't help much, I think, for many that even like say something on Instagram that the algorithms are optimized to boost photos of faces or like it, basically you are rewarded for showing yourself and for posing and taking selfies and almost the toxicity comes from multiple directions in terms of creating this image conscious state where you are expected to be in the front and center of this body of work that ultimately has nothing to do with how you look or presenting as a woman. There's nothing wrong with, of course, this gets into many other issues. People have the liberty to explore their image and to portray themselves, even to role play, or especially through their work, to create this space for themselves where they have freedoms that perhaps they might not have elsewhere in terms of identifying. Again, on the terms of the artists themselves, it should always be. It shouldn't be someone from the outside imposing upon them or that someone then feels pressured because of how social media is constructed or how what their agent or what some festival expects them to. Now it's always like you have to, along with the bio, send your press materials and all of this. And the only way around that, at least for me personally, is that I've had to create even when someone asks for bio and you send them bio or send them photos, they can still just Google around and then pick other things that might not be what you would choose for yourself because again this is someone else's interpretation or also other information that might have just zero relevance to what it is that you're doing as a musician you know some people want to compartmentalize their lives so that they might during the day be working here or there and that has nothing to do exactly with the work that they're making as a musician and they want those things separate because that's part of the point. I think that the industry as a whole would benefit if there was more communication, honest communication between all sorts of people in that long professional chain from artists to someone writing about that and everyone in between. I think that just people need to have their wishes respected or considered even, that would be a start. But in terms of image, it's getting better, but very slowly and unevenly as well, because every country is different. I've always admired the musicians and artists who don't need to use their image as a currency. But I also acknowledge the fact that for those people, many of them, it's a privileged position in that they have people who help them get their work out there in whichever way. Not everyone has that luxury. And I think the trap currently for many is that 
having access to social media, which in a way is democratizing. It's the same with like anyone can make music now more than how it used to be before, where it was kind of a a vocation that besides having some hobby or like, you know, just playing an instrument at home, you can basically bring the studio into your home. You can, from everything from recording to releasing, you can do it yourself. This increase in access and this immediacy almost so that if you can slowly cultivate an audience and you have these tools at your disposal to inform the world about it, this is an asset. But at the same time, it creates this pressure Social media helps to fill in the gaps for people who don't have access to what some privileged individuals, and by privilege I mean that have the right connections in terms of support to publicize and to help create the opportunities based on the work that the musician is doing, to find avenues to distribute and to get it out there. Social media allows people who don't have this to do this, but then it relies very heavily on frequency. It again ties to image. It basically, you become a one person marketing company for your own work. You are your own publicist. You are your own photographer. You are your own web developer. You're doing it all yourself. And then when you're doing this and you also feel like you have to constantly be in people's faces, otherwise they aren't going to pay attention. This attention economy is extremely toxic and it also impacts creative work. I mean, if you're spending your day doing this, you're not going to be making anything. I think it varies, especially in different generations, different age groups, how this stuff is viewed and handled and how it fits with everything else in the day or in life. If someone is just constantly on their phone and that's something that they've been used to since they were five, then I think maybe the view would be different from perhaps mine when I'm a very online person, but at the same time, I acknowledge the impact of being very online on mental health and sense of perception of the world and attachment and connection and it's not a substitute at least in its current form it's no substitute for like face-to-face -face interaction or like organic meeting people and being like basically um, tapping into different networks in some community and having things grow in that way or like how it was when basically some band tours that's how people find out some friend brings someone along and my brother for example who's very not online finds out about music sometimes through exactly this a friend invites him to festival or whatever and he'll like someone's on stage and will look this person up later and that's how he's discovered someone it's not because of social media or some even article in magazine This goes back to being extremely online because I've moved around a lot and because there have been some years when 
I've dropped out of school and there are different things that have happened in the past where the internet has been a lifeline in many ways especially in times when like if I'm in Cairo for example the culture scene in Cairo wasn't always as it's come a long way in terms of how we think about a scene it wasn't always the case and it can be very also going back to identity when i'm in egypt i am the one who has lived in london and i'm not egyptian enough if i'm in london i'm egyptian and i'm not british enough it, so internet always helped to bridge this divide to find like your own space to connect with people who have similar interests but completely different backgrounds From the start when I began to release music since the beginning it was always Bandcamp for me it was only because Bandcamp existed that I was able to release something and it was because I was using SoundCloud before that I was uploading things I didn't really mean to release something it just happened that there were all of these uploads well that's kind of enough for a release and when people were asking if they can buy it I thought okay hey that could be really cool that something that you made someone might want to buy it for example I to this day I have never toured I've played very few live shows I've probably DJed more than I've played live because I write and produce and record and do the artwork it's very like a solitary activity and then I put it on the internet it's always been what for some people it is like now during covid times so that hasn't changed much for me in terms of the schedule and the approach and how things fit together it was always very heavily dependent on the internet i guess the paradox there is that this is actually the time when i would like to a bit move away from that and to go a bit further in being able to perform being able to basically what serious musicians are able to do or expected to do because i haven't explored that yet to continue to build audiovisual work but to also not just put it online to have it be viewed in physical space for there to be this different aspect of audience for there to be connection between it's not just like you're putting it online and people find it maybe like you don't know but to actually to share a space with others and to share those moments so that it's not just me recording some improvisation at home and thinking oh you know imagine that this was something that was shared this to play music with others to perform with others when i was young to participate in theater to take part in a play with others when you're just playing you have your role and other people have their roles and you're coming together to present something together to create this world together and it's interesting that almost it's the reverse for me in comparison to many others who for them it's they come from this more physical world in terms of their music practice and now they are focusing on online because of necessity it's the only option we'll see what happens i guess I think like a lot of the approaches that are being taken now 
Maybe some institutions are treating it as a temporary fix, especially if they have funding for an event and the event has to kind of happen, but they move it online and also exploring with the technologies and seeing what works. You know, there are some Currents FM, for example, this trying to offer live streaming, but a bit preserving some of maybe the social experience that is experienced in some physical context. There's still a lot, I think, that can be explored. Also, the technologies are quite limiting. In the end, it's about your internet connection and the servers. And if the sound isn't syncing with the... Exactly like having some video chat. It's not like if we were sitting face-to-face in cafe drinking coffee. There is still something a bit missing, but that's only if you try to make this online thing be like the offline thing. There's still space to push it where we're no longer trying to replace an experience in physical world. We maybe some talented developers and designers and also musicians can explore creating maybe online experiences that are something new entirely in terms of presentation and audience involvement. There's a tendency sometimes for these things to also get a bit gimmicky and fetishize the technology itself. It's no longer even about like what you're trying to communicate, but it's that like we're doing it in VR, for example, and that's the thing. I'm really glad that CTM teamed up with the Club Matryoshka team. I think it was a good chance to experience the world that they have built over a long period of time. And Minecraft is a game, personally, I had never played Minecraft, or at least up until that point, I had never connected to Minecraft server. So that was very new for me. It's beautiful and immersive in the way that some really good independent games are. These games built by indie developers and I really enjoy this visual and audio aspect. In a way, making that the setting of some virtual club, it works. It works at least in this period of time, but it doesn't have to be contextualized as like a club in virtual world. I think we there's this opportunity to break away from club as context or stage as context. But that's a harder question to answer in terms of then what can it be in the future? There's still this hope that some institutions have in terms of having events again, real world events. And I think that maybe we'll see something like hybrid festivals in the future where there's some things online, some things offline. It's in their interest to maximize exposure. It's like part of the content creation and also helps them to be discovered more so that it's not just like word of mouth that they're relying on. There's the commercial aspect, there's the social aspect, there's also the community aspect as well. And you're right, like there is this chance now to focus more on local scenes, definitely, and to nurture them and to grow them. I see that so often the natural conclusion of that is that then something gets big enough 
to attract people from outside to the local scene. And then you get into these issues with Airbnbs and it becomes like a draw for the city itself, like for tourism. I mean, Berlin, case in point, when it comes to like atonal and these festivals where a huge part of it is that it attracts people from outside and they spend their money in Berlin. This impacts then the local population as well. It does Do we benefit from this in any way? It will require many different interest groups to sit at that table and to discuss what the options are. And there isn't like some one size fits all approach. I think every city is different. Every type of event is different. Every depends on also the music itself or the work. Not everything can be packaged in the same way. And I think that maybe what will come in the future in terms of online experiences is that there will be more of a variety that it won't just be some stream on YouTube or Twitch. Or... It's an exciting time. Also, there's conversations happening around technologies that are adjacent to this, that can be also incorporated. It will take very literate and invested people who are not just looking for commercial gain, but actually really are considering the social dynamics of what it means to have this culture tied with place and where that place is online, offline. We will see. I think it's a stylistic, aesthetic choice for some directors and these big projects that are produced that involve the input of many people. Someone like Kubrick, considering the symmetry of his work, ultimately, even in Space Odyssey, there are these classical elements still, even with it being sci-fi. But if you compare to Blade Runner, for example, which is a grittier take on sci-fi, the soundtrack there was quite experimental for the time, also using a lot of synths, still a bit maintaining some classical elements, but also interesting sampling and vocals, um, really evocative, the atmosphere there. One of the cases where I even, I think I like the soundtrack even more than the film itself. Had it not been for the soundtrack, maybe I wouldn't be so crazy about the film. But now there's definitely a lot more experimentation with soundtracks. One of the ones that sticks out in my mind is there's a TV series called Devs that explores quantum mechanics and many worlds theorem and Jeff Barrows and I forget the name of the other composer did the soundtrack and it's sort of a mix between the story centers around a bit this Silicon Valley environment very California and so it has some folksy pop music but also some choral arrangements, really sinister and sparse, mixed extremely well with what's going on in the scenes. And this, to me, as a soundtrack, 
is extremely rich in experimentation in comparison to maybe some other TV series or movies where it's, yeah, just like the full orchestra and just like really big hits. Like Johan Johansson in Cesario almost like trademark these very ominous low strings that like sound like moody. This created a bit a trend. And I think there are lots of trends in soundtracks also, I think this, again, consideration of commercial viability and what people might expect. And we also internalize that if you hear these like, then it's like about to get just there's the suspense and action. There's a language in soundtracks. And I think that the way that the manner that people speak in can be if you spend enough time speaking to someone you can kind of maybe start to pick up how they speak i noticed my accent changes sometimes depending on like who i'm with and what i'm hearing and i think that in composing as well there's this language embedded in the music when there's some christopher nolan big budget hollywood film sometimes it's like the most simplistic music but that's kind of what people have come to expect in that kind of movie like you have the cars racing down the street and then dun, 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 dun. this is very in mainstream this is very common so you have to get more into outside of mainstream to really see more interesting compositional flourishes and someone exploring and someone also having creative freedom in a smaller team and where also the cinematography is interesting. I think it's for many reasons that this happens. It's classical music or something else. Exactly, dubstep, and also this is exactly the foundation of deconstructed club music, basically sampling these soundtracks and the Foley work and stuff. I mean, it's no coincidence that some of this is in this specific genre, if it can be called that, that there's a lot of broken glass and gunshots. It becomes part of, again, it, it's in the DNA of a certain sound. People come to expect it. If someone wants to sit down, hey, I want to try making dubstep, they're going to bring the wobble like the interesting things happen more on the fringes of this when something is still a body of sound is still being created people explore more in these moments in these spaces what's interesting is that ultimately it seems that this experimentation ends up bleeding into mainstream in one way or another and then becomes overdone and tropey it's like some life cycle between the inception of an idea and suddenly you're in some shop and it comes on the sound system and you realize like it's oh but hey i i used to listen to something that vaguely sounded like this but now it's in like pop music hope that things will go back to normal but also it's 
probably impossible and normal from before wasn't exactly ideal either. It's an interesting time because everyone also, their view of the status quo is very different. And I think it also, normality suggests the person who is suggesting that it is normal is a situation that is to their favor because otherwise it would be considered abnormal. Promise No Promises is a podcast series produced by the Women's Center for Excellence, a research project at the Art Institute, FHNW, Academy of Art and Design in Basel, conceived as a think tank tasked to assess, develop and propose new social languages and methods to understand the role of women in the arts, culture, science and technology, as well as in all knowledge areas that are interconnected with the field of culture today. If you're interested to get more information about further podcasts and events related to this project, please visit dertank.ch. That's dertank.ch. Or request information or subscribe to our newsletter at info.kunst.hgk at fhnw.ch. That's info.kunst.hgk at fhnw.ch. Recording and editing, Sonia Fernandez-Pan. Final editing and voiceover, Elena Ziesel. Music, Stephen McAvoy. Research team, Alice Wilke and Marion Ritzmann. Press and communication, Anna Franke. Technical support, Esther Hunziger, Stephen Schoch, Konrad Siegel and Chris Handberg. Copyright by Institut Kunst, HDK FHNW 2021.